Good morning. Good to see you guys. Spring has sprung. It is upon us, which is good. The ushers are coming to take up our offering for the day. If you are new with us, just know that that's something we do for those of us who call this place home because it's part of our worship to God. It's to give back to him from what he's given to us. And we just invite you, if you're new, to let those plates pass. We hope this service is a gift to you. Know that God wants your heart more than he wants your money, okay? That's important to recognize. So uh, we've put this, oh, wait, before I forget, because I will forget if I don't do it. Uh, Every year we host a prom for a, a group of young people in our city who have special needs, and we are doing that tomorrow. So here's my invitation to you. After the second service today, if you're still around, we gotta clear all the chairs out of here. So we could use a little help. So if you are around and available, come on back. We'll throw some chairs on some carts and we'll get them out of here. If you have the availability, we'd love you to do that. I was supposed to do it at the end of the service, but you know me. If we get to the end of the service, it didn't happen. And Steve Locke was going, thank you very much for doing that. All right, so let me show you this. This is uh, what we call a competency square. Anybody ever seen this before? So I like to use this to talk with folks a lot about leadership and about their giftedness and how to sort of understand uh, what their strengths and weaknesses are. So let me kind of walk you through this. Three of those squares up there represent something really good and one represents something really bad, all right? So if you look at this, essentially what you have is unconscious and conscious, incompetence and competence, all right? So in that lower left-hand square, that, that is what we call unconscious. In, actually, I don't want to start there. Let's not start there. This is the dress rehearsal. All right, let's start in that far right-hand top square, which represents conscious competence. You kind of see that, right? Those two would come together, conscious competence. What conscious competence is, is when you're good at something and you know you're good at it, right? And you're so, you know you're good at it and you know how to train someone else to do what it is that you do. Do you have something like that? I hope so, right? Something that you're good at, you know you're good at it, you can teach somebody else how to do it, maybe even just teaching your kid how to tie their shoelaces. You are consciously competent teaching a kid how to tie some shoelaces, right? It might be that you're really good in the world of finance. It might be that you're really good as a mechanic. I don't know what it is, but you are consciously competent at something. Now, the other side of competence is what we call unconscious competence. That's that top left-hand square. And that represents being good at something, but not knowing necessarily why you're good at it. And a lot of us have that. We especially have it in our younger years where we are competent at something, we tend to be good at it and we put our hands to it, it works well, but we couldn't necessarily explain why or teach someone else how to do it. Now, unconscious competence is a great thing, right? It's, it's great to have giftedness. That's what we might call just being gifted at something. And so, the, of course, our goal is to grow from unconscious competence to conscious competence, right? Now, the other side is incompetence. Now, you may think incompetence is a, always a negative, right? But it's not necessarily, because let me tell you one of the places where incompetence is actually a really valuable thing. It's when you are conscious of your incompetence. When you are bad at something and you know you are bad at it, because that means you can get what? Somebody else who's good at it to do it, all right? This is why we have teams. This is why we work together. This is why Jesus made us a body together. And says some of you are an ear and some of you are an eye. When an eye tries to do what an ear does, it doesn't go so well. Right, And so one of the most important things you can learn is where you are incompetent, to be conscious about that. And I'm one who would argue that it's actually not worth a whole lot of time and energy to, to take something where you are highly incompetent and just work to become competent in it. You should, you're better served to press into your strengths. Okay? Now, we get to the last square. That bottom left-hand corner re- represents 
unconscious incompetence. So you've been following me all along. So if, un, if conscious incompetence is being bad at something and knowing you're bad at it and saying, oh, hey, this is not my, this is not my deal, then unconscious incompetence represents what? That you're terrible at something and you don't know it. Okay? Now everybody's looking at their neighbor and going, yeah, this is you in this area, right? And you just didn't know about it. I, I was highly unconsciously incompetent in the area of youth ministry of making t-shirts for students. I thought I was really good at designing t-shirts for a season. And then I noticed that no students were wearing the shirts that I designed. And very quickly I realized, actually not as quickly as you might hope, uh, I realized I should hand that task off to somebody else who knows what they want to wear more than I want to know it, right? So here's the deal. Three of those four squares are really good if you are consciously competent, that's awesome. If you're unconsciously competent, that can be great. If you are consciously incompetent, that can be a really good thing. But the one square that's dangerous up there is unconscious incompetence. Would you agree with that? That amounts to having a need that you don't know you have. And that's really the gist of what I wanna get at with this whole illustration of the competency square. It is dangerous to have a need and to not know it. It's dangerous to have a need and to not know it. You can wreak all kinds of havoc and you can do it in a lot worse areas than t-shirt design for student ministries, okay? So here's the thing. Throughout Isaiah, God has been talking to the nation of Israel and he's been inviting them to be his servant. Now, when I say servant, I mean he actually throughout Isaiah has used this title of, of the servant of the Lord, and whenever he uses it, he's inviting Israel to be this thing. Now here's what it means to be the servant of the Lord. To be the servant of the Lord means to be the instrument through which he accomplishes his purposes in the world. That's what God wants to use Israel to do. He says, I, I want you to show all the other nations of the world what I'm like. I wanna use you to establish a kingdom of justice and of righteousness, and I want you to obey me and follow me. And so that all the other nations would see me and come to love me. That's his job for the nation of Israel. And again and again, we find that Israel fails to fulfill its purpose to be the servant of God. And in, chapters, in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, the section we've just gone through, what we saw is that it set up kind of like a trial scene where God and, well, where the people are accusing God, almost like putting him on trial to say, you have forgotten us and you have forsaken us. Because if you remember our history, they've been taken into exile in Babylon. Isaiah's writing about a day when they will be living for an entire generation, for 70 years. So a whole generation comes and goes living in exile. If you can imagine that, let's not just dismiss the difficulty of living in exile as if it was three years and then they were done. Uh, like it was a short little sentence. It was a whole generation of Israel that came and went and lived outside of the land that God had promised to give to them. So it's an incredibly difficult thing. But in the midst of that difficulty, what God says is, you are saying to me, Israel, that I have forgotten you and that I have forsaken you and that I have not been faithful to you. And God's response to that is to say, I have been faithful, not unfaithful. You have been unfaithful but let me show you what I'm doing. And so he, he declares that he's doing all these things on the world stage, raising up kings and bringing them into power so that he can orchestrate his purposes for Israel specifically. And they look at that and they see evidence that God is not in charge, whereas God says, oh, this is evidence that I absolutely am in charge and am working on your behalf. 
Does that make sense? You with me? Okay, so that's the trial scene that's been set up. And now at the end of Isaiah chapter 48, and I didn't touch on it last week because I knew I'd touch on it this week. What happens is that God says to his people, because you have not fulfilled your purpose as my servant, this title that he uses throughout Isaiah, because you have not fulfilled your purpose as my servant, I am going to raise up a true and better servant who will do all that I have intended to be done. I'm going to bring about, I'm going to raise someone up who will do what it is you were supposed to do but have not done. And that's what we're gonna find he's declaring in Isaiah chapter 49. Now, as we come to Isaiah 49, we're gonna see that what he's saying is, I have a true and better servant who will establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness and do the work that Israel you have failed to do. Now, even as we look at that and we look at historically Israel's failure to live according to God's law and to trust God that he was faithful to them, the thing that we probably recognize is that description doesn't just apply to Israel, does it? Who else might it apply to? To you and to I. That God has called us to be his true servants, to be those who would follow him faithfully and who would establish justice and righteousness in the world. That we would practice it and that we would argue for it and that we would move towards it at every step, both in our personal lives and in our civic lives together, our corporate lives together. That we would be a people who work to establish justice and righteousness in the world. And would you say along with me that you have failed to do that at points? I certainly have. We as the people of God have failed to do it just as Israel has failed to do it. And so the message to Israel is the same as the message to us. What you have not done and could not do, in fact, is what we'll hear God say. What you could not do, I have done by raising up a true and better servant. Now, when Isaiah wrote these words to Israel, they didn't know that the name of this true and better servant would be Jesus. They just knew that there would be one who would come and that he would be the fulfillment of all that Isaiah would write about. We are entering into a section now of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 49 through about the rest of 55, where God is going to just focus in on this true and better servant that he is going to send. Now, we have the luxury of looking back across history and knowing that the one being described in these chapters is our King Jesus, that he is the one being talked about and what he will do. So here's our joy today. Our joy today is that we are going to get to gaze upon, to look upon our true and better king and what he has done and who he is. This true and better servant that God has sent named Jesus. And our ambition, my ambition for you, my prayer for you, my prayer for myself this week has been this, that we would not be unconsciously incompetent when it comes to our being aware of our need for Jesus that we would see it afresh and anew, that we need him because he can be what we cannot be. And as we come to the elements today, as we come to communion today, that we'll hold in our hand the representation of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and that we would recognize that what we hold in our hands is the most precious gift that has ever been given to meet every one of the needs that we could never ultimately fulfill in ourselves. Okay, are you with me? So that's what we're gonna look at today. Isaiah 49, if you got your Bible, you can go there. Now here's what I wanna do. Because this is not the first time Jesus has shown up in the book of Isaiah. We're gonna focus in on the first seven verses of Isaiah 49, but I also wanna do a little bit of backtracking. And so I wanna show you Isaiah chapter six, and I wanna show you, show you a little bit of Isaiah chapter nine, and there's so many other places, Isaiah seven, Isaiah 42. There's all these places we could go to show you where God has already brought Jesus onto the scene in the book of Isaiah. So we're gonna focus in on 49, but I wanna start in Isaiah chapter six. And we'll put the words on the screen for you 
as they come up. So here's the question that we're going to try and answer today to help remind ourselves of our need for Jesus. Here's the question. Why is Jesus the true and better servant of God that Israel and we could never be? Why is Jesus the true and better servant of God that we could never be and that Israel could never be? So the first one we find in Isaiah chapter six. So if you're there with me, you can look at this. And because I know you guys have like photographic memories and you remember everything I say up here, you remember when we preached on this like eight months ago. Isaiah chapter six, verse 13. Look at what it says. So in this section, uh, Isaiah is talking about the judgment that God is gonna bring upon his people, the discipline that he's gonna bring to Israel for failing to fulfill his commands. That's what this whole little section in Isaiah six is about. You may remember at the beginning, Isaiah has this vision of God and his temple, and he says, woe is me, for I have seen the Lord, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He is undone by the holiness and the purity of God. And then God declares this word of correction and discipline on his people. And then in verse 13, after talking about what he's going to do and he's going to judge the people, he says this. And though a tenth remain in it, in other words, a tenth of the people remain in the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. In other words, I'm not gonna stop my discipline at the point where you think I would stop it. It's gonna go even further than you might think. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. In other words, he's gonna say, I'm not just gonna chop down the tree, I'm gonna burn the stump that remains. And so that, that sounds tough, right? That's a word of pretty strong discipline that God is bringing, but then look at what he does next. The next thing he says is, the holy seed is its stump. Now that's a weird phrase to put at the end of that verse when you've just made the point, I'm gonna discipline you strongly, so much so that you're gonna be like a tree that I cut down and then I'm gonna burn the stump. But then he says the stump is actually not you, Israel. The stump is the holy seed. And so the question becomes, well, who is the, who's the holy seed that is going to be burned when it should be Israel who is the tree that's been chopped down, who is the holy seed? The holy seed is Jesus. It's the first reference to Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And what he's saying is he is the one that will receive the ultimate punishment. You, Israel, will be disciplined for a time, but there will be one who will come and will be, be disciplined, but not for any fault of his own, but because I do it for you. And so it's a reference to the fact that Jesus will bear the wrath of God on behalf of all of people. Do you see it? So here's the first reason why Jesus, here's the first reason why Jesus is the true and better servant of God that Israel and we could never be. It's because he can bear the weight of the full wrath of God for sin. He can bear the weight of the full wrath of God for sin. That's what these verses or this verse is talking about in Isaiah chapter six. Now the, the key word in that sentence that I just used is the word full, right? He is able to bear the full wrath of God. Now, the Bible speaks pretty plainly about the fact that God has wrath towards sin, that he will punish it and he will not allow it to go, he will not allow injustice to prevail in the earth forever. He allows it for a time, but one day he will bring it to an end. And let me just tell you that you want a God who judges because you don't want a God who just sort of winks at injustice, at gross injustice in the world. You want a God who will do something about injustice, not just allow it to act as if it never occurred. And so God says, I will do something about it. 
I will do something about it, but the thing that I will do about it most is I will burn the stump who is the holy seed. Now, friends, here's what you need to understand. There are two options when it comes to paying a debt for sin, when it comes to the wrath of God being poured out upon sin. It can be poured out upon those who sin or it can be poured poured out upon his son on their behalf. Now, here's the important thing to remember. The reason that I can never be the true servant of God and bear the full weight of the wrath of God is two reasons. Number one is because I can bear the wrath of God for my sin, but I can't bear it for yours. Because Jesus is perfectly righteous, he's able to not just bear the wrath of God for his sin because he didn't have any, but he is able to bear the wrath of God for your sin and my sin because he didn't have to bear it for his own. Does that make sense? If I bear the wrath of God for my sin, I bear it for my sin alone. I can do nothing about yours and you can do nothing about mine. So the fullness of the wrath of God cannot be borne by any human person because it can only be borne for their own sin. Here's the second problem. The second reason why Israel and why I can never be the true servant of God that Jesus can be is because not only can he pay for others' sin because he was perfectly righteous, he can also pay for it in a once and for all act through his death and then emerge victorious through his resurrection. Because of his perfect righteousness, his death was received by God as a perfect sacrifice, absorbing God's wrath and being a full and final payment. If I am to bear the wrath, friends, I would need you to hear this. If I am to bear the wrath of God for my own sin, it will go on for eternity because my death is not a suitable payment for that sin. Not even for my own. So I must endure that wrath for all eternity. It's a hard truth, but it's a biblical truth. It's one that many people try and skew away from with the idea that, well, there's this annihilationism and one day we'll just cease to suffer and God will bring it to an end. But that is not what God declares in his word. The great warning to all of us is that we would know that if we are to absorb the wrath of God for our own sin, that wrath will have to be endured for all eternity. Because our death is not a once and for all payment. It does not ever finish paying for the sin against which we have rebelled against God. Jesus is the true and better servant of God because he absorbs the wrath of God. He is able to pay for your sin and mine because he was perfectly righteous. And he is able, he is able in one act to absorb all the wrath of God, all of its fullness for all sin, for all eternity. This is how good Jesus is. Do you begin to see how you don't measure up? Never could. It's a a small example of it, but if you've ever had, if you've ever had, anybody had student loan debt? Anybody had a mortgage? Do you remember the feeling when you, I, I'm still paying my mortgage, so I haven't gotten there yet, right? But my dad has told me, because they pay theirs off, the great, a great feeling is when you write that last mortgage check, right? Or for that student loan check. Some of you are like, I wish I could write that last student loan check, right? Wish I was done with that. It is a good feeling when you pay the final penny of that debt, isn't it? When it's done, when it's paid, when there's no more, when month after month the bill doesn't come anymore because the bill has been paid, stamped, 
paid in full, done. That's what Jesus is able to do as the true and better servant of God. He's able to pay the full debt, every bit of it, with one glorious act of the cross. Second reason Jesus is the true and better servant of God that you and I could never be is because he can establish a perfectly just and righteous kingdom that never ends. Look at Isaiah chapter nine. So just flip over a couple of pages there. If you've got your Bibles with you, we'll put it up here as well. The thing that, uh, the thing that we said earlier is that the job of the servant of God is to establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And what Isaiah tells us is that that Jesus is the one who is able to establish that kingdom and it is perfectly just and it is perfectly righteous and it goes on forever, never to end. Look at Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. Talking about Jesus says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of, his in, of the increase of his government and, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Do you see those terms? With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What this text is declaring is that the one, the child who would come, the one who will be born, according to Isaiah, who will be the true and better servant of God, will establish a kingdom of perfect justice and perfect righteousness, and it's the increase of his government will know no end. It will be upon his shoulders, and he will establish it forever. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, I've heard that before, but I just want you to ponder this with me for a minute. Think on it, okay? We have seen too many times, and we don't have to think too long or too hard, I would imagine, to think about the abuses of governments run by people. Yeah? Our own government has a litany of examples going all the way back. The most recent example I can think of is the story of Alfie Evans in Great Britain. Anybody been following this story? Alfie Evans has a terminal diagnosis. He is, I think, 48 months old. He passed away on August 28th because the British government determined that in spite of the fact that the Italian government was willing to pay for his health care, willing to bring him there as a citizen, in in spite of the fact that his parents wanted to continue to fight for his life, the British government determined that they would lock the doors of the hospital and hold him inside, take him off life support until he died. Because they determined that as a government, they should be the ones to decide when life ends. Not God, not parents who want to continue to fight for their kid's life. Governments run by people always end with gross injustice. With gross injustice. Alfie Evans is just the latest example. So when I say that one day we will not be ruled over by people anymore, you should say hallelujah and amen. One day, one day, we will sit under the authority of the true king and he will establish a kingdom of perfect justice and perfect righteousness and he will rule and peace will increase forever and his government will know no end. There will no longer be the injustices that come with living under the rule of people. One group of people oppressed by another. One life snuffed out for another who's viewed as more valuable. There will no longer be those types of injustices because our king will reign and Jesus is able to do it and he's the only one who is able to do it. If you have some vision of a utopian future, 
Let me just put to rest that that will never happen apart from the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. But, my friends, we have a promise in the word of God that he will establish his government in the earth. That it will come to pass. And we will know the great joy and the peace of living under perfectly righteous rulership. I need you to see the contrast between those things. Because it's going to make you long for Jesus when you begin to see. When you begin to see it. If you're Alfie Evans' parents today, you are longing for righteous rulership. You're longing for it. For a kingdom of justice. The third reason why Jesus can be the true and better servant that you and I and Israel could never be is because his words carry the authority of perfect truth. Look at Isaiah 49. Now, we're actually gonna get to Isaiah 49, believe it or not. Here we go. Isaiah 49, verses one through seven. I'm just gonna look at the first couple verses. We'll take them verse by verse. He says this in verse one. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. So this is the servant speaking now. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, listen, all the peoples of the earth, basically, is what he's saying. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's, a, that's an interesting illustration, isn't it? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Okay, so the first phrase I want you to see that this servant of the Lord in Isaiah, who we know is Jesus, is using, is he says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Now that image gets used a number of times in the Bible, believe it or not, specifically about Jesus. A couple of examples, mostly they're in Revelation. So like in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, talking about Jesus and his second coming now, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That also, that image occurs in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, in chapter 2, verse 12, and in chapter 2, verse 16. Every time that image of a sword is used, it's in reference to judgment, that God will separate good from evil. The servant here, Jesus, will separate good from evil. When Isaiah says, or the servant says through Isaiah, a, he has made my mouth like a sword, what he's saying is that, his, that he will bring about a separation of good and bad, good and evil, justice and injustice. He will separate those things. And because the sword comes from his mouth, he will do it not with a literal sword. He will do it with what? With his words. That's what this text is saying. So in Isaiah 49, when the servant says, I've got this sword coming out of my mouth, what he's saying is my words carry the authority of dividing Truth from untruth, righteousness from unrighteousness. What I declare is a declaration of what is good and what is bad. And everyone will be measured according to whether they align with my words or they disalign with my words. My words declare the reality of the universe is what this servant is saying when the sword comes from his mouth. Right, which is why, listen, what Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, says, for the word of God... Remember, Jesus in John is called the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus' declaration of what is true and what is not is the standard against which our lives will be measured. So here's what that means. 
It means Jesus, it means a couple things, but it means Jesus never lies. He never lies. One of the reasons Jesus is a true and better servant is because everything he says has the absolute authority with perfect truth. Just imagine the authority of your words if you never, ever spoke anything but the perfect truth in every situation. If everything you said was perfectly true, never hedged a little bit, never sort of nuanced just a little bit to make you kind of, look, here's how bad I am, right? When I need to ask forgiveness for someone, I will try and figure out the way to couch the thing that I have done wrong in the most favorable light as I go to ask for forgiveness for something I've done wrong. Yes, you've done that, come on. Right, like, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I probably should just say I'm a horrible, wretched sinner and this is what I, but you, you know, we just, we hedge our words. We, would you agree that we struggle, we struggle to speak the absolute truth in every situation? Yeah, I certainly do. You know, and we justify, well, I'll save their feelings a little bit. You know, oh, you know, it, yeah, maybe if I just don't, I gotta say it kind of this way versus that way. And God, Jesus is, it strips authority from our words. And what Jesus is saying, my word has authority because I never speak anything but the absolute truth. Just imagine what kind of authority our words would have if we did that. But again, what we see is that we're not capable, but he is. The second thing this means, I think, that this sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth is that it means that everything, and just, just ponder this for a second. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, kind of up here, but it means that everything Jesus says is a fact. There is no such thing as an opinion coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Everything he says is a declaration of the way it is. And if he declares it, then it becomes that way, if it weren't already that way. So he never, ever, I mean, my, my uh, wife has been really great at helping me. I have a bad tendency of stating my opinion as if it's a fact. Right? This is, this is just the way it is. That's the worst thing ever. Right? That movie is da-da-da. That food is da-da-da. No one should ever like it. That's just a fact. She's like, that is your opinion. You should learn to state your opinion as an opinion, honey. I love you. Right? And she's so right. It's, it's been a, 10 years. I'm learning, right? I'm learning. It's good. But this is the remarkable thing about Jesus is there's, there is no opinion. It's never, I think, I hope, I want. It just is. When he declares it, it is. When he states it, it is a statement of fact. How good is Jesus? How amazing. Are we beginning to see why he can be the true and better servant that we cannot? Are we beginning to see it? Oh, we need him so much. The fourth reason he can be the true and better servant that we never could be is because he can pierce spiritual darkness. And again, look at Isaiah 49, verse 2. The second half of the verse, which I read, after he says that his mouth is like a sharp sword, he says, in the shadow of his hand, talking about God, Jesus talking about God, says, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Now, the reference to being hidden away there is probably twofold. One is probably a reference that God has protected and preserved his true servant. But more than that, more than that, because we're going to see that the servant is not always protected, but will suffer. 
right? We're going to see that in the coming chapters. More than that, this idea of him being hidden away, I think is probably we're more apt to think of it as God is, has hidden his purposes of sending this true and better servant and what exactly he would do and how exactly he would accomplish God's work in the world, that we knew certain things about him, but there were other things we didn't know, which is why in the New Testament we find Jesus called the mystery of God. Paul says he has revealed a mystery to us through Jesus Christ, that it was this thing hidden back before the ages, something that we didn't quite know how it was going to be worked out, how this servant was going to come and accomplish the purposes of God in the world. And we had one idea about how that might happen, but there was another way in which it would happen. And so he's saying this hiddenness that he's talking about, I think, is a hiddenness of God saying, I'm not going to reveal all my purposes yet. I'm just going to show you enough. And so Jesus is being kept back, in a sense, until the time for his coming. And then he says that he is a polished arrow. Did you catch that? A polished arrow hidden in the quiver of God. Well, what, what else would an arrow be but, an, but a weapon, right? But a weapon. And so what Jesus is saying is the true servant is this one who is held back. And we can't, we can't know from this statement about hiddenness that Jesus is co-eternal with God, that he's existed forever with God, but it at least hints at that. And then we look forward into the New Testament and we find places uh, like in John chapter eight where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, saying, I, I have always existed. I've been with God for all eternity. Or John one, verses one through three, where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. These declarations that Jesus is co-eternal with God. Now, let me put the pieces together, okay? If this hiddenness is hinting at his co-eternity with God, and then we're told that he is a polished arrow, in other words, a weapon against darkness and evil, that what we can know is that Jesus is able to be the true and better servant of God because he doesn't just fight, he can't just fight evil in the physical world, but he's able to pierce the heart of darkness in the spiritual realms because he is co-eternal and has existed forever. He is able to do what must be done to establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness. It is not enough to establish a physical kingdom in the world. The heart of darkness that is in the hearts of people must be dealt with. And Jesus is the polished arrow who is able to pierce the darkness of the human soul and bring light and joy and hope. He is able to kill the darkness in the soul. And so the reason Jesus can be the true and better servant of God that we can never be is because do you have the ability, do I have the ability to take the darkness out of a human heart, to kill it and destroy it? No, we don't, but he does. He is able to do it. God's kingdom of justice and righteousness requires a victory over spiritual darkness. It requires a victory in the souls of people C.S. Lewis talked about this inability that we have uh, when he said this in his, the book, The Abolition of Man, uh, which is a great read. I highly recommend it. He said this, uh, talking about the need for something internal to be able to make us what we're supposed to be. He said this, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests. That's a great phrase. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Now that's a little bit of an odd quote, but what Lewis is getting at there 
He's talking about taking away what is needed to produce goodness in men and expecting goodness nonetheless. He's saying as a society, he's talking to his people at that time, saying as a society, we have taken away what is honorable and virtuous and good, and yet we've expected to reap virtue. He's like, that's foolishness. You can't take those things away. You cannot create men without chests, without emotional uh, investment in honor and goodness and expect to get a society of honor and goodness. That's what Lewis is talking about in the abolition of man. And so what we learn from Lewis there, I think, is that he's saying we don't have within us the, the ability to produce the goodness that is required of us. And Jesus is able to do something about that. He's able to get inside the human soul and to cut away the darkness and to pierce it and bring and make something new from it, something good. Last reason why Jesus is able to be the true and better servant of God that we can never be is because his trust in God is unshakable. His trust in God is unshakable. Now you remember all through Isaiah, we've been seeing again and again that God has been saying to his people and to us, trust me, trust me, trust me. And his people again and again, they fail to trust him and so the true and better servant is going to have to be one who would trust God no matter what, right? And look at what it says in verses four and in verse seven here, chapter 49. The servant says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And look at verse seven. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one. To one deeply despised, talking about the servant, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. In other words, he's gonna endure great difficulty. He is going to be crushed. And then it says, kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves. In other words, he won't be pushed down forever. One day kings will bow to him. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now, we're going to get into, in the coming chapters, more about the suffering of this servant and what it looked like and how it accomplished what needed to be accomplished because that was completely unexpected among the people. So we'll talk more about that. But the point for today is for you to see this. In spite of the fact for this servant, for this true and better servant Jesus, in spite of the fact that things would not always go swimmingly, that things would be hard, that he would experience futility and rejection and being despised. In spite of that fact, do you see what he says? Yet my recompense, in other words, my reward is with the Lord. He never ceases to trust that he is God's true and better servant. There's never a moment where Jesus failed to trust exactly who the Father was and exactly who he was in the Father. He can be the true and better servant because he never ceased to trust. Now here's the thing. If you haven't begun to see it already, let's just, let's, just, let's just cover this ground again, okay? Can you bear the full weight of the wrath of God for sin? Can you establish a kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness in the world, not for a small time, but forever? Can you speak, do your words carry the authority of perfect truth? Can you pierce the heart of spiritual darkness in the souls of men? And can you have a trust that is unshakable in God? 
if the answer to even one of those questions is no, and I pray that you see that it's no, then you need Jesus just like I need him. And you need him desperately. You need him every moment of every day, every hour. You need to lean into him and fall upon him and say, be for me what I could never be. You are the true and better servant of God. We're gonna come to the communion table. I'll ask the ushers to come. As you come to the table, you hold a precious gift in your hand. And here's my invitation to you. As we've talked about this needing of Jesus, as we've talked about this needing of Jesus, I wanna invite you to take advantage of this space now. We create this space in the service. This is not just a tradition. Do you hear me? It's not just a tradition that we do. We do it because we need to be reminded. We need to hold tangible things in our hands and say, yes, this is the price that was paid so that I could know life. This is what the true and better servant did so that I might have life. And I just want you to reflect in this time, I want you to reflect on your need for the Lord, your need for Jesus. Where are you not seeing it? Perhaps you've never placed your faith in him. Perhaps you have never said, I need Jesus. And today could be that day where you say, I need him. I wanna take him as my own. I wanna take him as my own. If that's the case, we invite you to declare that to God, to say it to him, I need you. I need your death and your resurrection to be the substitute for the death that I owe you. I, the debt I owe you. I need your death to be the payment for that. And if you would say that today, then come to the table. Come to the table and receive the grace of God, the mercy of God represented in these elements.